0: Good morning, everyone. Glad to see you all this morning. We are going to open with a prayer. So the Lord be with you. you. Let us pray, gracious God. On this last Bible study before Christmas, we ask your presence among us. Fill us with your spirit that we may be sent from this place inspired by your word to the work you've given us to do in the world. And today, we especially pray for our friends who need your healing touch and your presence. We pray especially for Effie McCullough, for Jack, for Taylor, for David, for Melanie, for Bob Wilbur, and for all those who need strength and healing as they go into this holiday season in recovery. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Morning everyone, so as I noted, this is the last Bible study of this year. We will be back on January 10th. And so again, if you have never gotten an email from me, let me know your email address. We got, I think, three new ones last week to just make sure they were on the list. But if you haven't gotten an email from me and you did not give us your address last week, Grab one of those communications cards in the pew back in front of you and drop it to me after um, this study. It's also a great way, if you've got some prayer requests, that we can use here in our Bible study to let us know. So January 10th, we are back together again. Today, we are looking at chapter 9. And in chapter 9, and because it's Christmas, we're going to use red and green, (laughs) we have... Oh my gosh, we do not have my notes. Hold on. One second. That, you know, that's faith. That is faith. Um, Wing it. No, we'll see. We're going to see if technology works. How about that? Um, So we've got four sections of chapter nine. And those four sections of chapter nine, look at that. Isn't that helpful? Okay. So four sections of chapter nine, follow Jesus's teachings, and you can almost kind of place chapter nine in context. Jesus's ministry is now fully public. The last few chapters, it has been almost a little regional. Jesus has a few moments where he's got some groups, and he's doing a few good things, healings, resurrections, that sort of stuff. Nothing small, but small (laughs) in its sort of size and its connectedness to other people. This chapter, it really kind of takes a step up, right? Rather than Jesus being surrounded by small crowds, Jesus is now surrounded by huge crowds. And so he has really shifted from a couple hundred people who probably know him and come around him every once in a while to now we're talking thousands. And to put that into scale, the population at this time anywhere is nothing close to what the population is today, right? So today, if you had a few thousand people doing anything, it's significant, right? But back then, a few thousand people doing anything together was almost unprecedented, right? You rarely ever, for anything, got that many people together in one place. And so when we go through this chapter today and Jesus is surrounded by a few thousand people, that is remarkable. I mean, a gigantic number of people, especially for that day. And so we're going to separate today into four different sections. The first is really discipleship and feeding. The bottom line, really, for this entire chapter is discipleship. and Jesus is really getting into what it means to follow him. The second section is messiahship. And that really is getting into who is Jesus on a cosmic scale, right? Obviously a nice guy, probably a prophet, a good teacher, a healer, but now we're gonna really vet what it means to be messiah, to be sort of the Christ in, in the world. Third section would be the transfiguration. And the Transfiguration is a really dynamic story where Jesus reveals something to his disciples. God kind of gets in the mix in a very tangible way. And arguably, God's kind of present with the disciples for the first time, kind of in, in a tangible sense. And then the last thing is the dynamics of discipleship. So you open and close with the question of what does it mean to be a disciple? And Luke handles this with a lot more intentionality than some. And so this chapter bookends around what it means to follow Jesus. And so we're going to start by talking about the way that Jesus teaches. So Jesus teaches in a classic kind of Greek philosophical way, right, that was pervasive around the Mediterranean. You've got a teacher. That teacher creates a set of followers and then imparts wisdom to the followers, right? The classic model, this would be a Socratic model style, where a teacher teaches some kind of truth to his students, and then those students go out and find their own students and continue to teach those truths. What is different about what Jesus does, however, is that Jesus is teaching truth about him, That is a uniqueness when it comes to this model of teaching. Jesus really begins to explain to his disciples what it means that he is actually fulfilling the truth. So it's not just some theoretical philosophical truth, but Jesus is really beginning to explain something about who he is and his own purposes. Throughout this first section, Jesus is offering his followers an opportunity to see what he would have them do. And it's less about knowledge and more about action. And this goes right into the feeding of the 5,000. So, easily, one of the most famous, well-known stories in scripture, right? The feeding of the 5,000. And we can probably all, on some level, recall this story, right? Jesus is teaching. There are thousands of people around him. He's been talking for a while, and the people are hungry. Jesus is speaking on a mountain so that people can see him, right? So let's just put it into context. I think I mentioned to you before that the place where many, where tradition holds that Jesus did this is up near Galilee. And it's, not necessarily a smooth mountain. It's full of big stones. And so if you can just imagine that people may have found a rock, and we're sitting on the rocks or the stones and watching Jesus kind of above them, right? Easier to see Jesus um, than if it were a flat place. And so these people are just listening to him talk, and he talks and he talks. And in Matthew, we get this image of the Sermon on the Mount, right? And it is. It's a different set of teaching. We have said in here before, so just a reminder, Jesus likely did each of these things many times, right? It's not like he gave the Sermon on the Mount once. It was probably the sermon he gave over and over and over again. But the gospel writer who is writing a good story is going to pick one moment and make that the moment when the writer recalls that sermon. And so it could be the same thing with the feeding of the 5,000, right? It is completely possible that Jesus was doing this kind of multiplication and physical feeding all over the place. But the gospel writer is telling a story. And so in this story, this is the moment when Jesus feeds all these people. And as Jesus is speaking, the disciples come up and say, Hey, everybody's hungry. What are we going to do? Like, you got to send them home, right? Because this is not near their house. They have not parked in the garage, right? It's not easy for them to get back home to have dinner. It's going to be a trip. And so the disciples are kind of like, yo, you know, it's, it is time now that they need to leave or they won't get home and we cannot feed them. And so Jesus says, well, what do we have? This boy comes forward with loaves and fish. And Jesus breaks the bread, looks up to heaven and blesses it, and then feeds everybody. Let me say for a second that this story for me is meant to be an invitation for us to enter into stuff we don't understand. I want us to resist trying to figure out what happened. That's human, it's natural, right? there are plenty of people who have written about things like, well, maybe the boy was the only one who didn't know that he shouldn't tell Jesus he had food, right? And when the boy came forward and offered what he had to Jesus, everyone else was like, oh, okay, I can pull out my food, right? Because they all had food. And so it really wasn't that Jesus is multiplying this food. What he's really doing is is kind of acknowledging that we can be generous with one another, and when everybody was generous with what they had, then there was plenty, right? It's not a bad interpretation, but I think that takes a little bit of the, of the special away from this story. On the flip side, we should also not make this a metaphor, right, some people I've heard describe this story like the people weren't fed with food, they were fed with God right? And their bellies were full of the Spirit. I kind of think that's crap. I mean, it's a, you know, it's fine. I mean, you can be full of the Spirit. That's not a problem. But I think, again, it undermines that this was something miraculous, right? We don't know what happened. We don't know how it happened. We don't know where the food came from. We don't know why there was so much left over. It just was, And so we can be in this unknowable place with God, and that that's okay. We don't have to understand everything because we won't understand everything. And if we start from a place where we can explain it all away, then I think we lose what is truly mysterious about the way God functions. It's also not magic, right? It is not, Jesus does not presto changeo pull bread out of his sleeve and that sort of stuff either don't worry about how it happens, right? Just, it just happened, and it's a miracle, right? In the same way that demons are cast out, the dead are raised to life, Jesus can feed people. It just is. In this moment, however, Jesus takes the opportunity to talk about what it means to feed people. Remember that Luke is writing this whole story after everything he's talking about had already happened, Right? So chronologically, it's easy for us to forget as we read that Luke is not sitting there writing this down, right? He's not a journalist deployed in the war zone reporting every day about what happened. Instead, he sees the entire picture at once and then writes the story. So when Jesus gets to this point and he takes the bread and the fish, and he breaks the bread and blesses the bread. What's he doing? Right. He is foreshadowing the Last Supper. And I do want to say that Eucharist is not the wrong answer. For us, it links to the Eucharist. But literally speaking, the Eucharist is not a thing here. Okay? So we develop that as a sacramental expression of what happened in this story. So it's okay to note that, but from a literary perspective, what Luke is really doing is beginning to set up what happens at the Last Supper. Jesus multiple times in the gospel seeks to feed people, and the way he feeds people is by giving thanks to God for what they have. That should not be lost, right? It's, it's a subtle thing, but it presents a model for us, right? We always have enough when we are grateful for what we have. And that's really what Jesus sets up for his disciples. And this is, for them, too, countercultural. They don't have enough most of the time, whereas we have plenty more than we need all the time. And so you're talking about two sides of the same coin where gratitude, right, for what you have is always enough. And that's where Jesus is with his disciples. So to move on to the next section, Jesus's disciples are trying to learn who Jesus is in order to tell the story. So again, this is a different kind of learning than other models. Jesus is not necessarily speaking about philosophical truths. Jesus is trying to explain who he is so the disciples understand who he is, so they can go out and tell others about Jesus, not about just general human idea. And so to that end, there is a difference between knowing who you are and other people knowing who you are. That is something that a lot of people, I think, struggle with. It's self-image versus the way that other people understand you. This is very I don't mean for this story to be self-serving. However, it's the way I understand it. I have said, many of you have know this about me. I never wanted to be a priest. Um, I There are plenty of priests who, as children, they wanted to be a priest, right? I mean, they just, they set their mind to it and they just make it happen. It was almost an accident for me. And part of part of the story, without getting into all the unnecessary details, is that People told me it's what I should do. There is something very powerful about people recognizing something in you that either you don't recognize in yourself or maybe you recognize in yourself but were a little insecure about. It is very different than people who think they are a certain way when nobody else thinks they are. Do you know those people, right? I know plenty of people who are very certain that they are that kind of person. And when they tell you they are, you're kind of like, "Ah, that is so nice. (laughs) Um, You think you are, wow, not that at all. Um, Jesus as a teacher, because he's not teaching general kind of humanistic truths, right? It's not math or science or philosophy. It's image, right? It's his identity, he's having to show his disciples that what he is teaching them is true. Because if he explains to them who he is in the messianic identity, they're not going to get it. I mean, Lord, they don't really get it anyway, but they have to see Jesus function in that way before they believe that he is who he says he is. Now, this harkens back to What I appreciate about Jesus, which is, he doesn't necessarily always know this is the case. I think we've mentioned before in here, there are other stories about Jesus that focus more time on his childhood. Jesus, I think it's nice for us to like the Jesus who is born knowing who he is. I think for many people that feels comfortable. I like the Jesus who has to figure it out. Because there's something about his humanity that connects with me, right? None of us, I mean, there are people in this room who don't know who they are still, right? That's a, it's a whole life journey. But there are some, many, hopefully most, who have figured out in at least most, mostly who they are. That's a journey. It doesn't just happen. You don't know the first time you are aware, you know, at age four or something who you are. You've got to figure it out. And so I like that Jesus had to, at some level, figure it out. Because we could say, why did Jesus, why was Jesus 30 years old when he started his ministry, right? Couldn't he have started at 22 or 16 or something? Why wait? Well, to me, the answer, why wait, is he was figuring it out. But then he figured it out. And he has to, in a, in a responsible way, help these disciples figure it out too. And so he begins to set up these experiences, like feeding of the 5,000, like the healings and the resurrections, so that the disciples really see the breadth and the scope of what it means to follow Christ, to actually put on Christ in the world so they can tell the story themselves. That shifts us to... Well, and I'll say just one more quick word about um, messiahship. I think it was two weeks ago, maybe, that we talked about the prophet, priest, and king identity. Jesus does not fill the box of any one of those ideas. He isn't just a prophet, just a priest, or just a king. He, in a unique way, fills all three of those roles. And that's really how he does redefines what Messiah means. I don't mean to be redundant and repetitive, but people were expecting the Messiah to be one of those things. And different people's expectations were reflected on Jesus based on which one they thought he would be. If he was gonna be the king like David to overthrow Rome, then they wanted to know why he wasn't. If he was gonna be a prophet like Elijah to kind of right the wrongs of the leadership, then why isn't he doing that? What he was really doing was melding all three of those things together, but in a cosmic way, right? It's not just on this earth, but it is something beyond what you see. And we get that for the first time in Luke's gospel with the transfiguration. So we're halfway through chapter 9 at this point. Any specific questions? This chapter, perhaps more than others, is so has so many small sections that... I'm not necessarily getting into any one of them. I think there were something like, my Bible divided this chapter into 14 different sections or something like that. So it's just almost too parsed out for one hour. So what Karen was saying is that there is a moment in chapter nine where it notes, and it's not just chapter nine, that Jesus is praying alone. And that is one of those biblical techniques that he almost certainly did pray, right? So it's not that that was just a technique, but when the gospel writer says it, then pay attention because whatever comes after that is going to be important in the literary structure. And it's hard, I think, for many, at least in my experience, it has been hard for many to really grasp that these stories are constructed by people, right? Because they're told well and they're told as if A person's walking alongside Jesus. What's more effective that way? But it is still a crafted story and so little techniques like the Jesus prayed, he certainly prayed, but when the writer says it, it's really meant to grab your attention because the thing that follows it next is important. It's almost like the sandwiches that we talked about last week or two weeks ago where you start a story then you inject a thing and then you finish the story that injected story is meant to help you understand the part one and two of the other story that it's around right so it's not just an accident like they got bored and threw in another story it's really meant to give you almost two perspectives like two two looks at the same idea so if one look doesn't make sense to you maybe the other one will and then it helps you understand Okay. Am I wrong? Is there a schism between them? There's a real division yes. between believers. Sure, so we as Anglican Christians believe that the Bible was inspired, written by people, but inspired by God, right? It is a holy book. It is not, however, written by God. And that is difficult for some of our brothers and sisters, right? We've got Christian cousins out there who really will, will say to you with all in good intention, God wrote the Bible, right? Well, if God wrote the Bible, God's really not a very good writer. Um, I mean, <clears throat> the Bible itself is, is sort of hodgepodge. It's like a quilt, right? Um, when... Any of you do marriage quilts? Um, is that a thing? Is that not a Texas thing? Okay. So <laughs> in, in my part of the Southern world, um, when someone gets married, they do, a family does a quilt and all the different individual families contribute a square to a quilt that is then put all together. So I, we have a quilt, I forget, it was like 24 squares or something like that. And each little, little family did a square in a different way. And so the colors are crazy, and the designs are different, and it's just, it's fabulous. That's kind of what the Bible is, right? Everybody does a little piece, but they didn't really talk to each other, or maybe they intended that it looked very different from one another, and then it's all stitched together, right? That's the Bible. Another person once told me that the Bible is like a little library, right? It's lots of books, but it's really a library. They don't necessarily relate to each other. Like, they can... And some actually really do, but many don't. You know, some stand alone, just a great story. You can get a truth out of one that looks like the truth out of another, and then maybe that idea takes a little bit of a priority. But there are some books where there's a truth, and that's it, it's not in any others. And so in my mind, that helps to prioritize bigger truths maybe, um, and so there are people who think that God wrote the Bible because either they haven't read the whole thing or they need to, in some way, believe that God is that intentional. Um, but I think I've given the example in here, you know, how long was Jesus' ministry? Three years. Three years, according to John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's one year. So who cares? I mean, Jesus had a ministry, right? Great. So they're just, they're just stories. That does not undermine my faith because John and Luke don't necessarily agree to the number of years Jesus spent doing stuff. He still did stuff. I am very comfortable that they wrote this story after Jesus's death and resurrection. Well after. It's still a good story. God is not contained in the words, right? It's kind of like a manual, it's fine, but if you ever looked at most manuals for anything you've ever bought in your life, manuals don't really tell you how to do whatever it is you're trying to do. I still will take my car manual out when I have to do things like change headlight headlight bulbs, and God, they're so useless. These (laughs) manuals tell you nothing. It's still a manual, I mean, it tells you something, but until you kind of get your hands in it, you can't figure out how to do it. And so to me, the Bible is a great manual. Gets you going, gives you some idea. You're at least moving in the right direction. But until you go and do something, right? Until you are praying, until you are feeding, until you are with a person doing this, you don't know, right? It's still theoretical. And so words are limited. And for the friends of ours who don't think they are, then, you know, pray for them. <laughs> but they're not gonna believe you. So it's okay. I saw some, one more. <clears throat> so the question is, maybe, tell me if this is what you're asking. Was Jesus's knowledge of his identity gradual? Or was there really a moment when he figured it out? Is that fair? Yeah. Ish. Um, I think if we are honest, as human people, we often know what is right and we know what is true and we don't want to accept it. And we kind of try to get out of it if we can. And Jesus did this to the end, right? In the garden, before his arrest, I mean, one of the most powerful moments for me is he says, please, I'd rather not do this, right? He used different words. But, you know, if you can do this some other way, like, that'd be super, because (laughs) it's not going to be easy. I'm really good going back to Galilee, right? But God said no. He knew that that was true, that it's what he was supposed to do but he was still trying to kinda, you know, just check in. Does it really have to be me, right? And I love that because that's the humanity coming out. And that's what we all do, right? There is there's never a situation, well, w- with the obvious caveat that there is, there are people who are ill in some way, right? So if there's a mental illness or an emotional um, you know, imbalance or something like that, I think for sure, we have to give, make that the caveat. but. For for most people who are mostly healthy, right, we all experience something hard, and we know what we're supposed to do. We don't really wanna do it, right? Maybe we are angry, or we are confused, or distracted, or disappointed, or whatever that is, and we kind of use that as the reason to not do the thing we're supposed to do, right? classic everyday example is forgive people who are jerks, right? Forgiveness is so hard. And I don't know how many times I've sat with someone who has said, I just can't forgive them. Well, you know you're supposed to, right? Which is why you're here struggling and you just can't. You can, but there's a choice to not. To me, that is really where... Jesus, Mary, and the others fall is they know it, but in a way they don't want to do it. In fact, I got a question last week that says, this is a good segue, that says in, in Luke for Everyone, the book that we're reading, it seems like Jesus's mother and brothers did not fully understand or appreciate his ministry, like what he was called to do. And so is that true? And I looked back, I I didn't necessarily get that from the commentary, but I think that this is a great way to couch that kind of interpretation. Mary knew, right? And Gabriel told her, but doesn't mean she likes it. And if any of us who have kids were told your child's going to die and you're going to watch him die. You might know that it's true. You don't like it. And you're certainly not going to, if you had the chance to stop it, would you? I mean, I think I would. It's kind of like that old, I don't want to say it's like Sophie's Choice, but it's, we can create scenarios in which we know we shouldn't do something but we would do it anyway? Um, I mean, classic would be would you kill somebody to save someone you love, like a spouse or a child? You know, I would, I'm not supposed to. I know I'm not supposed to and I would tell you very plainly I'm not supposed to. I would. For me to save me, I probably wouldn't. But that's my choice, right? And so to me that there are so many other scenarios that are less dramatic but are still the same kind of idea where we would do a thing we're not supposed to or we would deny a truth we know is true for something else because we almost can't even help it. And to me, that's the struggle that Jesus is in a few times is the sense of he knows what's right, but would still prefer not that if he could. Is that kind of get at it? Okay, any other Questions or comments before we move on to the next half? The Transfiguration. So, Transfiguration, sorry, I'm going to turn that earlier. Transfiguration is a fantastic story. And if you've ever been to the Holy Land, you know that the Transfiguration, the mountain on which they believe the Transfiguration happened, is really kind of like a really big hill. But it's in the middle of flat, and so it looks gigantic, right? If you've ever been in the mountains, you kind of gradually go into the mountains, right? Few, well, unless I guess maybe out west, you can kind of hit a mountain. But usually you're talking about mountains that are connected to each other, right? It's rare to have just a mountain coming out of nowhere. And that's really what this mountain is in Israel. It's kind of in the middle of a plain, and it's boom, there's just a mountain. And Jesus takes his three favorite, closest, Best, whatever you want to say, disciples up on this mountain, Peter, James, and John. And they're tired. And he says, just stay up, wait, and they are keep trying to fall asleep. And then Jesus is taken into the air and is transfigured, transfixed. He spins around. And I think I've preached about this here. I always think of the end of Beauty and the Beast. Where the beast gets lifted up and turned around, and light comes out of his hands, and all. I mean, to me, that's what I see when I read the story is that it's shiny and it's bright and it's stunning and maybe a little scary. And the disciples immediately start talking. And I love that because I am that person, right? I'm that guy where if there's something that's amazing, I don't just experience it, I start talking. And I love this because Jesus is there and he's like, boom, and he's got Elijah and Moses and not exactly in this story, but in the other stories. And so there are three people up there and they're stunned and they just start talking and then God comes down and surrounds them and says, shut up. (laughs) Jesus is going to teach you and you need to listen. And then they want to stay but Jesus immediately takes them off the mountain. In every gospel story, the transfiguration is followed by a healing story. And I think that we have to take these two stories together. So just like in other gospels, Luke is no different. The transfiguration is this literal mountaintop experience and immediately is followed by a really sad healing moment with a young child who is possessed by a demon. And Jesus casts out the demon and heals the child. In all of them, this happens. And I think it's very important for us to recognize the incredible mountaintop experiences we get with God, and that is not all there is. God calls us down the mountain too. We all, in some way, have thought or do think that God provides us with this excellent experience, right? If our faith is strong enough, good enough, if we do enough stuff, then life's gonna be really good, right? We search for these mountaintop experiences because they're so deeply fulfilling. But the truth is, God gives us the whole gamut. We get the very high highs and the very low lows. And it's in that entire breadth of experience that we can really recognize the truth that God is both with us and loves us and loves us enough to love others. That's gigantic. And we don't get that if we're only ever up on the mountain. There are plenty of preachers who have made it their business, and they've been very successful at convincing people that God only wants for us to Be happy. Never is that the sort of thing that scripture tells us. Never. It makes sense because we love that idea, right? Who doesn't like to be happy? But God is not into making us happy. God wants us to be fulfilled. And that kind of fulfillment is something that is way more dynamic than happy. We don't talk about happy to the world at Christmas, we talk about joy. Joy is a huge feeling. It is deep, it is high, it is broad, it is not happy. And that's a difficult thing for us to understand when most of us can be happy most of the time, right? We are comfortable, most of our lives are happy, We experience pain and heartbreak less often than many people in the world. And so for us, we think if we're not careful that we're not supposed to experience heartbreak, that if we can do our best to never experience it, then that's the ideal is not true. And this is the kind of moment in scripture that I think reinforces the idea that God gives us everything stuff that we want to experience and stuff that we don't. And calls us to follow Jesus in every place. So again, connecting this to discipleship. As disciples, we're called to follow. And Jesus goes up and down. And we're supposed to follow him in both ways. I keep talking about this for a long time. I I will note because I just mentioned following. For many Christians, belief is the starting place. I don't think that's a bad idea, but I think the better starting place is the following. And you could argue, and I think that's perfectly valid that it's both and, right, it's not either or. But Jesus, something like six times more often says follow me, then believe in me. So I just, I kinda feel like there's something to that, right, that belief is good, belief is a great thing, but perhaps belief can fail us sometimes, that we all will at some point, some more than others, but every one of us will come to a point where something bad or hard enough happens where belief is questioned. But if we just simply move, and we follow anyway, then belief's gonna come along. And so I've always subscribed to just do it. Do it anyway. Forgive anyway. Go care for someone anyway. It does not matter if you are happy or sad right now. I can remember growing up and going to my friend's youth groups, and. What I really got from them was, Jesus loves you, you should be happy about that. And if you're not happy, then that's your problem. And I never liked that because my tradition said, if you're happy, great. And if you're angry, that's fine too. And you can be sad and you can be any of these things. God's got you, right? I mean, God's there. God never leaves. It is not your problem that you are sad today. And if you are angry with God, be angry with God. God can handle it just fine. I think that if we put too much on belief and not enough on the following, we can very quickly get to a place where we feel like any problems we have are on us. And God never wants us to feel alone. And this is one of those moments where Jesus really just says, you following me is what it really means to be a disciple. So you follow me up and you have these fantastic experiences and you follow me down into places that you don't want to go, that will make you uncomfortable, that will expose you to the vulnerability of being hurt because that's what you're supposed to do. That's what I do too. Finally, we get to the part where Jesus goes rapid fire through a bunch of different stories. If you have not read these stories, then it's, we really don't have time to go through all of them. But I do want to jump to the end of the chapter. Because although there are lots of little moments that are each themselves, you know, some of them just a verse or two. They're worthwhile, little nuggets that you can pull out, but there's one at the very end that I think it's at the heart of discipleship. Again, and we've heard this sort of idea before, but Jesus is quite, uh, what would be the right word? Not blatant, but pretty just bare bones in this idea. At the end of chapter 9, Jesus says, Let the dead bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Another person along the road said, I will follow you, but let me first say farewell to those at my house. And Jesus said to him, no one puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. It's kind of harsh because this harkens back to what we have already talked about, which was, you know, hey, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside. They want to see you. And Jesus says, these are my, mothers and my mother and my brothers. We will hear the same kind of thing. If you don't hate your mother and your brother, then you are not ready for the kingdom of God. It's, it's harsh stuff. We don't like this, right? It looks like, you know, let the, bury, let the dead bury their dead. Well, wait a minute. Is it really that big a deal that we bury the dead? I mean this is not it's not a long time, right? I mean how often how long does it take to bury somebody, right? Not too long, a couple days. Your relationship with a person's not worth a couple of days of time. Jesus in essence says they're gone. Let it go. And then follow behind that, somebody runs up and says, "Hey, hey I want to follow you. Let me just go say goodbye to my family," which in almost anyone's world is very committed right? I'm just gonna say bye, right? Jesus says, no. If you look back, then you're not fit for the kingdom. Dang. We don't like this because it changes what we believe is the proper economy, right? We're supposed to love God first, but we're told to love each other, right? It is reinforced The example I just used earlier, that we're supposed to, that that, that human, almost carnal desire to connect with your family, right? Your people. It's a necessary thing and it's based on protection, right? I mean, you're safer if you have more people in your circle. And so if you can build a big enough castle with tall enough walls and fill it with enough good people, you're safe, right? You cannot be under siege because you've got everything you need. Jesus is sort of explicitly saying, if there's anything in you that makes you feel like you rely on anything other than God, then you've gotten it wrong. That means if you need time to say goodbye to a loved one, then you've never quite had your priorities right in the first place. Mm. Yep. It's okay, you can squirm. If you find that you want to follow Jesus but you've got to get some stuff together first, the priority is not right. This should feel hard to all of us. It's still there and I think I've said this before, whenever I prepare sermons, if there's a moment in a passage like this that I don't like, that's the one I preach on because there's something that is misaligned in me in some way and I kinda wanna vet that a bit. And so I wanted to leave a little bit of time, which I never do, to get feedback or questions about how this sits. And again, there are lots of little good moments, but in essence, what he does is he starts off with, you've got enough, right? And he ends with, your your hope is in the Lord only, right? Your attention, your priority, everything about the way you live starts with God. And if there's anything else that gets in the way of that, then the priorities are misaligned, Talk amongst yourselves. Yes. So, if it seems unkind and self serving, to who? Unkind to their. F- oh. you know, this just Is God a caregiver? Prove it. Well, so prove to me that God is a caregiver. And because we want Him to be is not proof. And that's, you don't have to, Ann. I'm just kidding. But I'm just saying, it's a. I think that when you take everything as a whole, now, I say prove, and. You can, you can prove anything you want about anything with the Bible. Gets back to the original sort of issue. It, is, it, was, not written by, it was not written by God, right? The Bible was not written by God. And so if you want to defend any idea, any idea, you can find a verse somewhere in the Bible that supports you. That is not good enough, right? That is not logically sound. If you can find a verse in in scripture that supports an idea, yet there are a hundred others that seem to go against it, then that one verse is just off in some way, right? I think that's what we have to do. So another, as Christian people, the lens that we have to understand God is Jesus. So if Paul or Peter or Moses, or David, or Saul, if anyone else says anything that does not fit through the lens of Jesus, it's not okay. Jesus has given us the most complete way to understand God's spirit. And so people do not like this. I can give lots of examples of how that is really what Christianity fights about, is people find something, somewhere, outside of the Gospels and says, this is how you're supposed to be Christian. All the while, Jesus has created space, huge space, for all different kinds of people. And yet somewhere in some letter, at some point, someone says, not them. That doesn't work because Jesus said, yes, them. To that end, we have over and over and over again. A God that is not concerned with our happiness. Not. God is concerned with our souls, with where we put our priorities, where we put our whole self. And so if God does not make you feel good, God doesn't care. God is not here for you to feel good. And we see that with Jesus over and over and over again. People come to Jesus and say, hey, I wanna do this thing, what do you think? And Jesus says, well, you have to do it that way. And they say, oh. And Jesus just lets them go, right? Classic example is you know, the wealthy prince who comes to Jesus and say, I've done everything I'm supposed to do, what else is there? And Jesus says, give everything away and give it to the poor and follow me. And the prince walked away because he had many things. That's what scripture says, right? What did Jesus do? Let him walk away. Jesus didn't say, well, wait, 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 wait. How about half your stuff, right? And then maybe you keep the other half and then you can follow me and all, no. And we have to believe that this this wealthy person had lived their entire life doing exactly what they thought they were supposed to do. Why is that not good enough? But Jesus says it's not. So do you think he was disappointed, sad, angry, confused? Of course, all those things. Jesus knew it, and what'd he do? Let him go. If Jesus, if the priority was to help people feel good, those experiences would not happen. And Jesus would, would take him in and, and sit with him and pray with him and over months and years try to convince him that this was the right way to do it. But he doesn't. Jesus has no time for this. Yes. So we have these examples where Jesus says, I, I came to, you know, put brother against brother and mother against child and all that. And we read those passages, and I think that we like to think it's somehow metaphorical or, you know, he doesn't really mean that. So what we do is we read passages like that and we say immediately, well, he doesn't really mean that. So what does he really mean? And then we try to interpret it through the lens of us, right? Because we've been taught exactly what you're saying, right? Of course Those fishermen were kind of jerks. You know, what about their families? They put everything down and followed Jesus and left their families behind. Except what did Jesus just say? All you need is God, right? So for us to presuppose that those people needed the fishermen more than they needed God, it's misordered doesn't mean we don't, we like it, right? Y'all, we don't, we have, we live in a culture that has convinced us that if we don't like something, it's not good. That's just not true, right? And I think that for many, for many faith groups, if the starting place is you're gonna like it, then all they ever do is jump through hoop after hoop after hoop, trying to convince you that you like it. That's not what this is, right? You should not come to church just because you like it. In fact, if that is the standard at which you measure whether you want to go to church or not, that's not right, I'll just tell you now, right? I do not want you to come and tell me that you may not go to church here anymore because you don't like this thing that happened, because you are very likely to get a response from me that is, God bless you on your way, bye. Because it's not about like. However, we're in it together. And so we, uh, ultimatums are not the way that God works. But we can grind on each other in a way that helps us be better followers of Jesus over time. So it's not that opinions don't matter, but it's when people think that they can hold others hostage for their happiness, that that is not the way God functions. And so we have the responsibility to not function that way either. Because in the end, what that is, is being a bully. And God does not play that game. I want to acknowledge that you don't like this, right? I am not expecting that you will leave today being like, Merry Christmas. (laughs) I mean, this is not, right? This is not, this should rub, right? Let it, it's okay. Because you're not being, we're not being condemned. That's the, that's where grace comes in, right? None of us are gonna get it all. But if we don't push on each other a little bit, then we allow one another to drift. And this is one of those opportunities. That's a, the best of a Bible study is when you leave kind of troubled, right? Let it, let it trouble you a little bit. Let it stir you up a little bit. Don't just cast it aside because it doesn't feel right. And don't just cast it aside because you, you obviously know it's wrong, right? I mean, it's, it's the Bible, and it's Jesus, so it's, you can't just throw it out, but I do want it to percolate, right? Just let it sit with you. It's okay, because like I said before, God can handle any sort of disappointment or anger you have over this, right? Somebody once told me that plenty smarter people, plenty angrier people have tried to put the Bible down. What's still here? And God is fine. And so the Psalms, if they tell us nothing, it's that God can handle whatever crap you have. So give it up and let it be messy because I think we'll end up being better for it in the end. One more. So are you, are you saying that because God may not prioritize our happiness, wow. he is then not faithful? <laughs> well done, Madeline. <laughs> Touche. Okay. <clears throat> the faithfulness that the prophets talk about in the Old Testament to me means that God never leaves us, never lets us go, never gives up on us. Does not mean that God is somehow working for our happiness. We might, if we're, <coughs> excuse me. If we don't think critically about it, we might think that God's faithfulness results in our happiness. Or and the words, this, we can play semantic games all you want, but God wants something so much more than that for us. And God never leaves us right? How many of you ever, do you remember that footprints prayer, right? Yeah. That was seem to be all over the place in the 80s. Um, everybody seemed to have that thing on their wall where, you know, the footprints in the sand kind of thing. Um, as cheesy as that is, that is, that's quite right. God does not leave us. And just when we thought that God wasn't with us anymore, we realized that God's the only one with us. To me, that's the faithfulness. God does not mean to save us from hurt. God means to save us from ourselves. And that salvation is always within context, right? Depending on where you are and what's going on in your life, you can certainly tweak it and interpret it. But I think that there is a a fundamental truth that God wants us to travel with him, to be faithful as he is faithful to us, and to not make as a litmus test whatever we're going through, right? It could be the best of times. God's still there. It could be the worst of times. God's still there. God will stay with us the whole time so that we are not afraid. God does not necessarily prevent us from experiencing pain but God will take the pain we experience and turn it into good love is not happiness love is bigger than that and God's faithful to us when we are not happy and when we are and when we are in pain he's with us every step of the way right I mean Psalm 23 is great because it never says that God's going to prevent us from going through the valley of the shadow of death, but God's gonna go with us in it. I think that's the nuance that I'm trying to draw. So with that clarity, (laughs) I hope you all have a wonderful Christmas. If you are not here physically for Christmas, know that we will be live streaming so you can take a little St. Michael with you um, and sing from wherever hotel room or lodge you're in. So thank you all. I'll see you January 10th next year. Bye.